Today's scripture reading is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let us give our attention to God's voice. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. I'm Giorgio, uh, senior pastor here, and I'm glad to, uh, to be with you this morning. Last week, we talked about the breaking down of the walls of hostility, and today we're going to talk about the presence or the building up of the realities of unity. But I also have another uh, uh, just exciting reality that happened this week, and that was I was able to get a haircut. And that was really like, I'm also decided, um, as this is an announcement, uh, I hope uh, I'll be able to continue my job here, but um, I'm also running for governor on the single platform that, um, that, uh, that, that places barbers and um, hair studios are essential uh, businesses always, no matter what. For, and that will be my only actual, um, you know, plank in my, um, in my, uh, my view, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to win no matter what. <coughs> So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being of full accord and of one mind. If a pastor writes those words, you can be pretty sure that the church has been fussing about something. Maybe it's the arrogance and infighting of its leadership. Maybe it's a pastor who's um, gone off his rocker. Maybe there are congregants assuming the worst about each other, not staying curious, impugning motives. Maybe it's the whole lot of them. Maybe it's just a lack of kindness and patience and benefit of doubt. I don't know. We do know that in Philippi, there was at least one really good chance at some significant conflict, and that is because we know that the Jews who had converted to Christianity, along with this Philippian jailer who had converted to Christianity, were now in church together. That means the guy who locked them up and the folks that were locked up were now coming to church together. And I'm wondering how that first fellowship dinner went. But really, the 50th fellowship dinner is the one I'd be most concerned about, because after the jailer brought some of his kind of imperial buddies to join them, um, I wonder how that was happening. We know, or do not know, what exactly was causing Paul to write this, but we know division is real. We know it was happening. God, as he is apt to do, creates one new people, one new family, out of philosophically, socially opposite groups. And God does this because he loves to show off his power and love by getting people who normally reject one another to actually embrace one another. It's kind of a shtick of his. 
Redeemer, most of us didn't grow up around these parts, right? We come from different backgrounds and distinctive stories. We are not a monolithic group. And if you don't believe me, you can probably check out my inboxes, my inbox for the last few weeks. And I love it. It is hard. It's excruciating. This week in particular, I didn't sleep all that well because of it, but I do love it. And it seems that Paul declares one of our great callings of Jesus' followers is to actually fight for the unity that we already have in Jesus, and that we do so with this kind of incredibly spirit-given humility. And the purpose is actually evangelistic, that they would know that we are Christians by our love. I don't have to tell you that there are huge fractures in American culture. And our church is part or in a culture. And so we have them too. And sometimes, some of us are miles apart from one another. And sometimes it's a little bit silly and we joke around it and we can have some, some kind of levity about it, but, but it is grave in many ways. It would be utterly arrogant of us as an American church to think that we're immune to what happened in the massacre in Rwanda, where Hutu and Tutsis, both claiming the name of Jesus at one point, people who were together at church and at family reunions just a few years before there was genocide. Y'all, the world forms us toward conflict, resentment, and even murder. And outside of Christ, we were willing participants in this. And so this makes, um, even as a Christian, inaction participation. Without a resistance to the world forming us in this way, we just, we just submit to it. And all of us struggle here. And I, my prayer, I, I, I pray that I and we would resist the spirit of our age to be eager to listen and love and reimagine the beauty of the church that Jesus has united in himself, that his transforming grace would work deep into the soil of our lives and so that we would have a more biblically shaped, a more love-born unity that grows in us. So there are three things here. I'll call it the three impossible steps toward Christian unity. Well, maybe the first one isn't quite impossible, but it is also difficult in its own right. The fuel of our unity, it's actually not um, like theological or doctrinal, but it's actually the experience of God's grace in our lives. It's not in the difficulty or a discernment of what our differences are first. It's not even a particular strategy to get out of it, but it is in remembering and recounting the kindness and power of God, and we call this grace. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, make my joy complete. Beverly Mose and I were talking this Thursday, and we were talking about unity and how important it is and, and how it's not, it's not just like uh, unison or an agreement on everything. And, and she says, it's, it's, we have to fight to get into some deeper waters. And I think that's right. There's deeper waters of grace here. So the first, ca- the first step in actually working towards unity towards another is for us to each recount our experiences of grace, of the grace God has shown us. 
So it begs the question, who are you struggling with? Who you're like, oh, I can't understand them. They make me mad. They're frustrating. So leave that person right there or that group right there. And Paul says, keep it right before you and ask this question. Have you ever experienced anything like God's grace? Have you had any encouragement in Jesus? Have you ever experienced some comfort from his love? Any semblance of encouragement, any, any story you might have of how he's loved you, any nudge from the spirit that you participated in, any kindness that Jesus has, has, has given you, any affection that you've experienced, any sympathy. Okay, now you can start. <laughs> we grounded in and not just the theology of the grace, but the experience of grace. Remember, we've been comforted that we've, been effect, uh, we've had affection given us, sympathy that we have received. Y'all, remembering or recounting the experience of this grace, a thimble full of this grace is rocket fuel that can change a church forever. And we've been poured 55-gallon drums of it all over us. In fact, we swim in an ocean of grace because we participate in the Spirit. And we start here because the work is so extremely difficult. It is, it is arduous and, and soul-sacrificing. It is actually false identity shattering. And, and the problem with false identity is they feel like real identity, so it just feels like our identity is shattering. It's the farthest from an easy step or three easy steps. Unity is, is learning to write with your opposite hand. It requires more of us than we had thought, and it, and it, it displays more of our sin that we'd hoped, than we'd hoped. But that's why we keep grounding it in our experience of grace. And it's from that place we can go to those deeper waters still. And I'm, I'm kind of using a, a phrase I'm just kind of made up that, that we would, the second step would be the pursuit of an uncommon commonality. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is a stubborn, ornery commitment to see the world and the Lord together. One-minded doesn't mean 100% of Redeemer is going to agree 100% of, time, of the time about 100% of the issues. To change the metaphor, it's not asking us to sing in unison, but in a beautiful harmony. But it does take time and work to see from another person's perspective. Friends, the elders met last Saturday to wrestle through the difficulties of race and police and protest and such. It's an easier Saturday morning. One thing we realize is that we we're, we're struggle to simply name reality in the same way. Not because people are trying to be arrogant or silly, but we really, our experiences and everything that has, has shaped us, we literally are trying to see the same thing and see and work towards a one-mindedness on some things. We're trying to figure out how to see together, even if we end up a, a, a disagreeing on certain parts of, of what we see. Having the same mind doesn't mean we all have the economic, historical, social, cultural, legal, and political uniformity. No, we have the same mind because we are committed to see Jesus be glorified in it all and see him working in all of it towards the unity of his church. 
and we're doggedly committed to trying to keep seeing together. But here's the deal. It's, it's not just seeing. It's actually coupled with this unity of mind as a unity of love. Paul is realistic that our divisions are not just thoughts. Our, our divisions actually t- come from our affections, our hearts, and that's what leads us to so many divisions. It's, it's actually precognitive, if you will. But on a positive note, this shared love is his love for us. And because his love for us, we're, be form- we're being formed into people that loves the same, the same thing he loves. And because we've experienced this and recounted his grace, like in step one, we know we have been touched by this incredible love, that, this love of Christ himself, and, and this love that is for each other, and this love that is for the world. And we share that. Our unifying love is for the kingdom come as earth as it is in heaven, for the hallowing of the Father's name. It is for the world, for every human being we come in contact to see and experience the beauty and grace of Jesus. We don't necessarily love the same partisan platforms or ministry philosophies. We love the same Christ and the same kingdom. We have the same love and must fight for the same love because we want people's voices to be heard, but even more than that, we want the voice of God to be heard louder than all the other voices, including our own, and that is the deep waters. How does this happen in a practical way? I'm convinced it's a thousand conversations, and when you're talking about a church, it's a 10,000 conversations and lunches and coffees. And I don't think there's any way around it. We must stay in there and stay curious with one another, ready one another, ready to listen and learn. And here's the kicker. We can't, we can't be ever so entrenched that we assume that we fully understand the other's person position or so fully entrenched that we're not willing to move off our own and be surprised by, by what we might not have seen that our brother or sister does see. Those of you who are political conservatives or liberals, liberals or libertarians or progressives or cynics like me, one might emphasize personal dignity and responsibility while others work for wages and dismantling broken system. But we must have the same mind and the same loves. There's lots of ways to solve the problems that are in our world and we must be patient and loving towards each other as we see and look for those together and maybe not agree on the best strategies. There are more ways to, to skin a cat. And I don't even know why I said skin a cat, because that doesn't sound nice. Don't imagine that this is conflict-free. Unity is never conflict-free. Christians aren't conflict-avoidant. We love truth and love justice too much for that. Shared love, having the same love, actually can create conflict. At my old church, I think I've told you this before, we called it the gospel cage match. Maybe it's because we're in Charlotte and the pro wrestling thing, right? Woo. But we'd say, get in the ring, and no getting out and no tapping out until you're utterly exhausted, everyone's repented, and Jesus wins. Our church had Christian anarchists in it. A North Carolina founding Tea Party member and the head of the local chapter of the DNC. And we had all, mostly moderates, would just ask them to stop fussing. 
But how do we get here? Because it's, if you just have a thousand conversations and there isn't this third step, then we're just going to talk. And we're not actually going to lean into and learn. And this is where the third easy, by which I mean extraordinarily difficult step is. The path of, hum, hum, of unity is actually humility. And it comes to us in an equation. Others, greater than symbol, me. Others, greater than symbol, me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. The path to unity, the posture of the conversations, is humility. In fact, not just humility towards the position, but an, actually, an actual valuing of the other more than yourself. That is so extraordinary, so unnatural. In fact, it is a supernatural gift. We not only have to recount God's grace, we have to count others more significant than ourselves. <laughs> it just seems impossible. We're supposed to take our priorities and our desires and our thoughts and our own significance and reorder them into the equation that others greater than sign me. Just sit on that for a minute. We could do this all year long. Any hint of application of that is just arduous and difficult. So to the one you're, that is vehemently angry towards you or you towards them or sorely disappointed in, you're supposed to value, I'm supposed to value that person more than myself. It does not mean I'm, I have to adopt their position. It means that I give myself to valuing them, their voice, their concerns, their stressors, and their perspectives, and their person greater than my own. I actually have to count them more significant than me. This kind of humility was berated by the Roman Empire. It was considered a vice and not a virtue. And yet Paul puts this forth as the reality of the unity of God's people. Here's our hope, is that we can return to the Lord together and get somewhere much more united than we were or are now. <clears throat> we can actually learn to deeply respect the other person's view, what motivates them, and even celebrate how they might be doing it in a different way. Because the gospel is strong to unite. I posted an evocative image on Facebook after the Minneapolis uprisings, which means only people over 35 saw it. Because <laughs> I don't know how to do that connection where you get Facebook and, and Instagram to talk yet. <clears throat> I did it because I believed there was something wrong that needed to be seen. It was hard for some, not because they are fragile, but because it seemed offensive and inappropriate, and maybe even more so from a pastor. Others loved it and celebrated it. 
The next day, because I saw that I may not have explained it well or it may have been misinterpreted, I wrote an explanation of why I did it. The heart behind and the meaning of my post, especially to those who had struggled to see what I might be trying to say, people I love and people who love me. I was helping them, I was trying to help them see what I see out of love. I'm not saying I did it perfectly, I'm just saying that's what it is. Also, along with many in our church, I marched at an event hosted by Winston for Peace. They actually called the pastors down front and all three of your pastors were there, so we were pretty easily seen because um, not only was everyone wearing black, but most of the people there were black, and so it was pretty easy to see us, especially me in my red hair. A congregant had concerns with what was posted there. I didn't even post it. He asked a very helpful question, and I tried to answer it from a Christian perspective. He was incredibly gracious to respond, and he was like, I just wanted to check to see what I was seeing, and is this true or not true? And it was all good. Again, on Facebook, a leader in our church posted about the murdered police officers, several of which were African American. And I wanted him to know that I saw what he saw. The violence of the uprising is awful. It is evil. So I commented on how much it grieved me. And I wanted for him and for others to see publicly that I'm united to him in the value of life from womb to tomb for every image bearer that exists in the universe. Again, we're on Facebook, so many of you didn't see it. We, that friend who I was posting with, disagree on many of the causes and realities of many issues, but we send each other articles and recommend books and podcasts all the times because we love each other and we love our Lord Jesus, and we're trying to make Paul's joy complete by having the same mind and the same love. We need to grow like crazy on how we do it and when we do it. We need help in recounting our own experience of grace and pursuing an uncommon commonality. And of course, the hardest of them all to, to have others greater than sign me. But we're going for it. And some may say we are unwise to post anything because it causes division or social media is a terrible place to communicate about division. I don't think it creates division. It exposes the division that exists. And I agree about social media. It is a terrible place to communicate, but I don't know if we can absolutely ignore it either. So I'm open to conversations about that too, and I'm sure he is. In closing though, I think it's really cool that, that what Paul does after this is talk about the absolute incredible uh, story of Jesus and is conquering over everything through this kind of humility. He puts it in the kind of cosmic terms of heaven and hell and life and death. Because one of the things we need to remember, and maybe this is going back to the first step is remembering the grace, but, but it locates our differences and our unity, not here and now, but in Jesus, which is at the foot of the cross and seated at the right hand of the Father. And that we would remember his task, our Lord Jesus' task, is to create us into one new people with him as our brother. And that we have an enemy that seeks to kill and destroy us, and that enemy has been conquered in the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
It's a little bit like if you imagine you're in the middle of a crazy fight with your best friend or your spouse or your kids or whatever, and then somebody is trying to break down your door. You know what happens? Your fight is over because you have a common enemy. This is what's happening here. Because see, y'all, when we so identify with a system or a platform or a party or an idea or a way of being, whether it's American exceptionalism or anti-Americanism, it's when those isms and those ists, the Satan loves to do this, move our hearts towards it in a way that becomes idolatrous. And there's nothing that will do more harm to the glory of Jesus than to let the isms and the ists of this world ruin and divide his church. I'm going to read a portion of the Screwtape Letters. It's actually a book by C.S. Lewis in which he takes on the voice of Uncle Screwtape. And he is a devil, a lead devil, trying to teach his protege and nephew um, how to corrupt a Christian. The context here is World War II in Britain, where there are Christian pacifists and Christian patriots, a divided church. Screwtape calls the Christian here the patient. And so he's, he's coaching his nephew on how to tempt or mess with the patient. And here he, said, he writes, Whichever your patient adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Then, let him, under the influence of the partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part of his religion. Then, quietly and gradually, nurse him on to the stage which religion, his religion, actually becomes merely a part of the cause, and Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of patriotism or pacifism. This is amazing because all of us, whether it's a named system or not, all of us sometimes will bring parts of Christianity uh, 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 as a, as a uh, baptize those, those, um, the, the, the non-Christian thoughts, the presuppositions into Christian terms when it's not really the thing driving us. And then he says, and then provide him with meetings and pamphlets and policies and movements and causes and crusades so that they matter more to him than the prayers and the sacraments, and charity. Charity is the word for love. And when that happens, he is ours. And the more, more religious he's about it, the more securely ours he is. Whew! This week, on Friday, I wrote our officers a letter. I'm going to read some of it to you. The stressors of these past weeks, race and protests, the last month's COVID and the economy, has Redeemer and the world at a rending point. I'm preaching on gospel unity this week. Will you pray? Only Jesus can hold us together. We need his supernatural resurrection power. Even our church and our officers are divided on many things and, of course, united utterly on other things. But let us remember our common enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And please join with me that the Father would deliver us from evil in our world, 
and in us and in the spiritual world. I'm praying that we would be totally humble about ourselves and our positions and yet be boldly assailing the gates of hell which are trying to undermine love and truth and peace and righteousness and unity. And that we would have the courage to continue a thousand conversations needing to fight for the beauty of the bride. I guarantee you that the Spirit, that if the Spirit mends us what is broken here at Redeemer and in the church in large, the world will stand in awe of Jesus and will declare it as signs and wonders of something only God could do. Because he loves us and has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between us in his very flesh, Georgia. Even right now, and since that time I wrote on Friday, your officers have picked a meal or a day to pray and fast for our unity. Some are doing it right now as I'm preaching. They're praying for us in the humility and love. There is one way forward, and it's where we started, recalling the glory of Jesus, because our unity is hidden, hidden at the foot of the cross and at the right hand of the Father, exalted above all nations. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please do what we can't do ourselves and help us repent our way there and remind us again how great you are and how much you love us. And let us not fall into our enemy's hands, the world that wants us to kill each other, literally. The flesh that so easily moves in that direction and the evil one who hates us. Would you please defend us, lead us not, deliver us from all those things. Amen.